Hello, I'm Mike Baselli, and this is Episode 7 of Passionate Pioneers. In this episode, we learned about the opioid epidemic and its devastating impact on our country from a leading expert in prescription drug monitoring, adherence, and patient-focused outcomes, as well as how this national leader is battling this public health crisis through the power of community and technology. Dr. Rob Valak, a pharmacy industry expert, is the founder and CEO of OpiSafe, an award-winning solution provider of platforms designed to manage the opioid response for prescribers, dispensers, public health agencies, first responders, and the general public. Their comprehensive approach helps close the gap between the epidemic and the solutions that stakeholders need to respond. During our time together, Dr. Valak shared how this public health crisis came about and why him and his team at OPSafe are perfectly positioned to bring relief to our nation. Toward the end of the podcast, Dr. Valak shared three action items all of us can take to help our friends, neighbors, and family confront and battle this epidemic that touches every corner of our nation. And before we dive into the podcast, I want to thank the entire OPSafe team and the quest they are on to bring much-needed relief to our nation's opioid crisis. I hope you will join and support these passionate pioneers to help grow their inspiring and impactful mission. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Valak, welcome to our podcast, being recorded at Halo Creative Labs, located inside of Angel MD's headquarters here at Catalyst, our healthcare innovation campus in downtown Denver, which, of course, your company also calls home. Yes, thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Excited to be able to talk with you today. We're excited to have you. Dr. Valak, I'm grateful to have you as a guest on the podcast today. In order for our community to hear from a nationally recognized leader who is working relentlessly to help confront and battle the opioid crisis in our country. As many of us know, this is an epidemic that touches every corner and every walk of life in our nation. And I want to be one of your biggest supporters so other leaders around the world who tune into this podcast can find out about your pioneering work at OPSafe. But before we dive into what you and the OPSafe team are working on to bring relief to our communities, I want to give this epidemic a bit more context as to the size and gravity of the problem at hand. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, every day, 130 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids. Roughly 25% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain end up misusing them, and about 10% develop an opioid use disorder. And from that, about 5% who misuse prescription opioids transition to heroin. Dr. Valak, these are stunning and terrifying numbers. Absolutely, Mike. It's, you know, we really think it's one of the most uh, important public health crises of our time and, and largely man-made. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to diving in more on that and to 
share the great news and all the wonderful work that you guys are doing at OPSafe. But before we learn more about this national crisis and how you and the team are helping so many in our country, let's lighten the mood a bit and give the community an opportunity to get to know you a bit more. Because inside every metaphorical superhero cape, leaders like you wear amongst us, there is the person as well. So we're going to enter into the icebreaker session. We've got three topics. Go ahead and randomly choose one. Let's see what you come up with. Ooh, favorite meal. All right, what is your favorite meal and why? Well, I think uh, it's probably having the family recipe Hungarian goulash that my mom made. Oh, my. That was passed down from my, actually from my father's side, but it was one of the few things. We, don't, we didn't have a ton of family traditions and meals and those kinds of things, but this one we did. And it's the only recipe that I can really cook that isn't just throwing something on a grill <laughs> right, and have it up in my head and it's passed down and you know, this, whole, this whole sworn to secrecy on the, on the recipe that you pass down that way. So there's only one of them, but it's this wonderful uh, sort of Hungarian goulash recipe that my kids still to this day, if I tell them I'm going to have Sunday dinner. They're coming over. And I'm cooking the goulash, and they're on there. And they're <laughs> 25 and 21 years old who do not want to hang out with their dad when they're 25 and 21, except if I'm making the goulash. So that's, that's our favorite meal. So dad's the cool guy when he gets behind the stove and makes the goulash. The one thing. If it's anything else, they don't trust it. But, but that <laughs> one, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. A family goulash it is. Well, thanks for sharing that, Rob. We do appreciate it. Now, before we dive into to the OP Safe journey and, and all the wonderful work that you're bringing to our nation, Let's get back into the history, though, of, of, of how we got here with the organization, with your leadership, and you being the founder and CEO. How did we get to where we are today? Rewind the clock a little bit for us on your journey to, to today. Sure. You know, my, my career started way back, you know, back, uh, you know, in the, the Moses and the, the Red Sea and the tablets and all that. Uh, but I, I was a pharmacist in the, in the mid-'80s, and my training was in pharmacy. And, and even then, we started to see things that didn't look right. Uh, in most medications, you know, you, you see very routinely, you don't hear a lot about them, and, and things go along pretty well, uh, unless there's the, the occasional issue. But with opioids, even then, 30, 35 years ago, we started seeing, gee, you know, patients are coming back too soon, and they're doing weird things like calling in the middle of the night and leaving mm-hmm. messages and coming at Friday at 6 o'clock when we know the doctors aren't in the office anymore. And, it, you know, saying uh, we'd see forged prescriptions. The first time I ever saw those things was in the mid-'80s and thought, hmm, somebody's desperate if they're committing a felony and forging a prescription to try to get more opioids. And this really started to build, and it was as early as the mid-'80s when we started to see these things and wow. pe- people showing up, and, and it gradually built over the, you know, the early-'90s and into the mid-'90s with a lot of different things that came about. You know, there was a campaign called Pain as the Fifth Vital Sign, and it was uh, largely funded by the pharmaceutical industry through a shadow organization called the American Pain Society, which is since been debunked as a money laundering organization for the pharmaceutical industry, but put on these campaigns about called get your life back. Pain is the fifth vital sign. And all of it was market prep by Purdue Pharma largely and a couple of others to prepare the market for some more powerful opioids that were being developed and released. And then in 1994, Oxycontin comes out and changes things. The marketing was really uh, overpoweringly uh, successful, uh, far reaching, and this peer-to-peer marketing, it's called, where doctors would be paid as consultants to tell their friends about it. 
and there'd be CME dinners under the auspices of continuing education. And friends being other doctors. Yes, until basically, hey, we're going to have Dr. Jones give you a talk uh, next Wednesday night, and you can have a nice steak dinner, and you can sit around and listen to Dr. Jones, who's a paid spokesperson for the company, getting an honorarium, uh, and telling you all about how wonderful some of these opioids are. And that went on for quite some time uh, to really to, to you know put this into the attention of docs from their peers. And this is a technique that the head of the Sackler family, who launched products like Valium and Librium and Oxycontin, only three of the most successful products that the last 75 years, used and developed this technique to market to doctors. And it, so that built. And a lot of other things, you know, with, with the Joint Commission on Accreditation saying, you know, you really should do a better job of assessing people's pain. They didn't say you should give opioids to everybody, but they did increase attention to it. Because when I went to school in the 80s, it was all about we're under-treating pain. We need to do a better job. We need to use the medications that we do have, and we need to use them more so people don't suffer, all of which is uh, I, I agree with. But the pendulum swung from rarely, if ever, using opioids to virtually all kinds of visits for pain. The norm became write them an opioid prescription. So it peaked about six years ago. In 2013, 260 million prescriptions for opioids were dispensed in the United States, enough for every American adult to have enough opioids to take for a month around the clock. Every adult in the country. Wow. This is where we peaked. And we're down a little bit from there. We've come down about 8% per year. But we still give out about 175 to 180 million opioid prescriptions every year. Coach me up here a little bit. I, I thought I saw a statistic recently, Rob. It, it's something of the fact of 80-plus percent of the world's opioids are prescribed in a nation that has roughly 3 to 4% of the world's population. That's right. We consume 80% of the world's opioids and over 95% of the world's oxycodone, one specific opioid, which is the active ingredient in Oxycontin. Wow. Most countries just don't use it. And I always ask people, you know, I, I know we don't have 80% of the world's population, as you noted, nor do I think we have 80% of the world's pain, nor do I think we have 80% of the world's knowledge, like we know something that other people don't in Europe or anywhere else for that matter. I, I think knowledge is distributed around the, the world very quickly, and everybody has it, you know, especially in this day and age, to have it instantaneously. So there's no knowledge gradient. That, you know, it's, it really is, it's just simply the fact that the, the drugs were marketed very, very well here, and we, we, we sort of lost this marketing battle and have become a culture where pain equals opioid. Hmm. Patients come to think that. Doctors reflexively write prescriptions, still do even with the attention that we're putting towards it. And again, we're making progress, but we have uh, quite, a, quite a problem on our hands. Wow. And you mentioned that it is starting to go down a bit. What, what, are, what are some of the reasons for that? Yeah, we've been working really hard, and that's kind of the next phase of my career. I went yeah. into academia mm -hmm. to study the problem. Then the last, uh, I don't know, from probably 2005 to 2012 or 13, 14, I've worked in policy, saying how can we create policies to address these problems? And programs and statewide kinds of things. And in doing so, we you know, passed laws to not allow doctors to prescribe quite so many opioids or to create these databases of uh, basically prescription records that pharmacies have to report what they dispense. And a doctor can look up before giving something to a patient, hmm, maybe this patient's going to seven other doctors or five pharmacies or whatever. It's called doctor shopping and pharmacy shopping. And if my patient is doing that, maybe I need to have a different conversation with them 
that oh, you may be exhibiting a use disorder. I want to help you get treated rather than just give you more opioids and perpetuate the problem. So there's things that we've been doing, but more recently, we've been trying to, to use those tools to say, hey, we need to address these continuing education, and doctors are prescribing less, but it's not a lot less. It's, it's turning this ship's, you know, the, anything that big with 260 million prescriptions a year going in one direction, this, this ship, it's hard to turn that thing around on a dime and it's taking time to just sort of, you know, turn, 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 and try to force the bow of the ship to turn and bring it around is, is really a hard proposition. Well, one of those levers that's going to help that ship turn is, is OPSAFE and, and your organization, which we're going to get into in just a moment. But I want to stress to the community listening in what this is doing to our country. Can you give us some real-world examples out there on the front lines, in the communities, in what ways is this ravaging our country? Some real-world examples. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's to the point where you can't go one degree of separation where you don't talk to somebody, either in your own family or circle of friends, that is touched by addiction. And off, very often, it's opioid use disorder. It can also be, of course, alcohol or other substances, but opioid use disorder is, is rapidly rising and is a really, really difficult problem. Uh, we see uh, all kinds of people, you know, with use disorders, people can't get into treatment. We don't have a lot of treatment capacity, and the treatment capacity we do have is, is not well utilized. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But we need to get people into treatment because if they don't, they oftentimes are become desperate, can't get opioids anymore from a doctor the more they realize that this is uh, a problem. And as, as a person becomes addicted, not even sometimes realizing they're tolerant and they get dependent physiologically, then they start to feel bad when they don't take as many opioids and they think their pain is coming back. Mm. And many times it's chronic pain that is coming back, but many times it's they're just physiologically have become dependent after a surgery, which has long since healed. And a year later, they're still taking an opioid. 6% of people who have a surgical procedure of any kind, even a bunionectomy, that are exposed to opioids after the surgery, 6% are still taking them a year later. It's unbelievable. It really is. And then those people clearly are not taking the opioids anymore for the bunionectomy. They're dependent. And they may not be stealing things. They may not be doing those sorts of things. But they're physiologically dependent. And if you cut them off, will experience really pronounced withdrawal symptoms. And many people in either of those cases, they've become addicted or inadvertently are dependent, will then go convert to heroin because it's much cheaper and easier to get. And then people can start using heroin and injecting heroin, and that's got a whole other set of consequences with it. Like, you don't know what's in it. Yeah. There's no better business bureau for heroin. You don't know what you're getting. Fentanyl or carfentanyl might be in it. And you're sharing needles, most likely, because we don't have a lot of syringe exchanges. And then people end up overdosing and dying from unknown things like fentanyl and heroin that they got because they were addicted to opioids, because they got too many to start with. And is this epidemic, uh, is this epidemic touching our youth in any way? Very much so. The most common first time someone gets exposed to an opioid is after a wisdom tooth extraction when they're 16 years old. The average age is 16. And that's when they first get exposed to opioids. Um, usually it's 30 tablets for a, for a wisdom tooth being taken out. And maybe they need two to four, the average number of tablets that people take after 30 that. 30 tablets for yeah. a tooth extraction. Yep. And most people take three and a half tablets as the average, three to four. And so you got 26 tablets left over. And even if you use the four tablets for the, the tooth extraction, which I'm not arguing with, the 26 leftover tablets are sitting around 
and kids get a hold of them, neighbors get a hold of them, you might use them yourself, even if you're 42 years old and I'm not a kid or a, I'm not a kid or an elderly person, and I just have these left over from this tooth procedure or my my sprained ankle. And if I'm just not feeling great, my back is sore, I shoveled the snow, I whatever, twisted my knee, I'll just take a couple of these because they're for pain and people have them left over. Or people know that they're there in the medicine cabinet because we dispense 180 million of these a year and they're in medicine cabinets everywhere. And I tell people the real drug dealers in the country are you and me and everyone else that has these sitting in their medicine cabinets so that their kids, neighbors, friends, cleaning person, electrician, realtor can get a hold of because they know where to go right to the medicine cabinet. Wow. So you've been on the front lines for, for many years, Rob, and I've been fortunate to, to watch your leadership, not only here in our community, but across the country. Um, give us some, a, a little bit of the aha moment and then, uh, for how Opie Safe got started, where you are currently with this very fast-growing startup that is doing such incredible work. But where was the aha moment to take your experiences that you were having and then turn it into a formalized software company? Yeah, it was, it was after several years of really, you know, st- trying to study this and figuring if we study things well enough, then we'll get the answers and then we'll be able to, to fix practice. And that's important. Research is really important. Or we need to have some better policies or programs to help fund treatment better or to fund better education or any of those. And that's important. But the aha moment came to me when I realized there's just things that policies and programs and research don't do. They don't help people physically do the things they need to do. And I saw an opportunity and was starting to talk to people about how can I make an impact that's better than just doing what I've been doing. What's the real key? And started to interact with some of the startup community folks and technology uh, entrepreneurs here entrepreneurs here in the Denver and Boulder areas. Yes, you did. And found a very, you know, really vital, uh, super intelligent, innovative, exciting group of people to work with. And that really fired me up and thought, this is where we can create things to solve problems. Hmm. And some of these things are simply that doctors are overwhelmed. We know what to do, but we don't know how to translate that into tools to help them do it. We, we know what to give patients. We even can help say, hey, these are the best choices for medications or whatever. We don't know what happens to them when they leave and return home. We have no idea. It's just we give them stuff, and we, we know what we give them because we have medical claims to say what we paid for, but we have no idea. What happens to people when they return home? And we have all these different data sources out there that we might have, but none of them talk to each other. Doctors cannot access them easily. And we, so we have all this disparate data sitting out there that no one can access, that even if we have the knowledge, we don't use it and can't readily bring it to the point of care so a doctor can make a decision right now about this person and get them on the right medication, or if it's not working, get them off that medication and onto something else. And I thought, we need to fix that. So you've teed me up for the next question. What is OpiSafe? OpiSafe is one of our, our company is named OpiSafe. Uh, we're doing business as OpiSafe. Uh, it's our, also our flagship product. And OpiSafe is a tool, a software system, that helps doctors prescribe and monitor patients better. So they get the most out of their opioid therapy and the most efficacy and avoid problems. And if they're having problems, to detect them really quickly and change course. So people don't become tolerant, dependent, addicted, needing treatment, going down that difficult pathway. And if things are going well, hey, great. We optimize therapy. We're able to help them optimize dose and get the most out of the opioid if it works for them. But if it doesn't, 
we do not want people to languish and be one of those people that was on that opioid for a year or two after surgery when it's not doing them any good. And it's just now, at that point, causing them problems. So OPSAFE is for monitoring and, and getting people and doctors to follow best practices, know what the best practice guidance is, what the latest research says, monitor their patients really well, and do that essentially in the background. So docs don't even have to think about monitoring things. They, we touch various different databases and, and check for if that patient, like, like I said earlier, if that patient starts to go doctor shopping or pharmacy shopping around, we check that state database every day for every patient automatically. And this is something the doctor used to have to do on their own and take five or ten minutes to go and check, and that's half of their visit, and so they can't do it. And we automate all those things. So we have this monitoring system called OPSAFE. And then on the patient side, does this technology get into an actual you know community member's hands of people that are you know the, the patients in our in our country? Does it does it touch them as well? Absolutely. And OPSafe has a, a patient side app that the doctor just tells them, and here's a little card with a code, and the patient downloads the app, and at that point can input things like how's their pain. We measure things like their pain and function, whether they're having issues with anxiety or depression or sleep. Things like that that are indicators that we want to follow to keep closely monitored, and we call those patient-reported data. Uh, it's one of the important data streams for us. And so OPSAFE really helps with knowing from the doctor's side what are the doctors doing, what's happening out there with, with other data streams like these prescription drug dispensing data, uh, with toxicology lab data, data coming in from the patient. And we merge all of these data, put them, analyze them, put them into a, an easy-to-use and, and view dashboard for the doctor, put this right into their electronic health record. We've wow. done a lot of integrations with a, a lot of partners, two of whom we met right here at Catalyst. Oh, that's great. So it's really been a, a, a wonderful example of how this community really does work. And then now we have something where a doctor going along doing their thing can click a single button within their electronic health record, and it activates our system, does all of our data gathering, analytics, dashboarding, and presentation, serves up decision support recommendations and does that all in five seconds for them instead of something they'd have to spend all day trying to, to put all those things together on their own so they can do a better job, have instantaneous, up-to-date information on the status of that patient and know if things are going okay or if they are veering towards the guardrails and we need to steer somebody in a different direction so they don't go over the edge of the cliff, which is what we don't want. Very cool. And of course, uh, you know, Rob, there has been quite a few rumblings out in the community of some big updates uh, and, and some big developments inside the OPSAFE camp. Can you share with the community what some of those are? Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, a lot of, uh, obviously, what we're doing in, in technology in our space is to try to create a, a good product that has a clear value proposition and, and meets a need. But product is only one part of this. For us, it's a lot of it is about team and who we're able to bring on to help us uh, both design the systems better, to meet the needs of, of people, and then to get the word out and help us grow. And so we're, it's very exciting. We've, we've hired uh, on our team in the last uh, several weeks several people that are, are really going to help us uh, uh, turbocharge our efforts, and we think in the next year or two really grow our company. One of them uh, is Cynthia Kaufman, who's our chief legal counsel now. And Cynthia was the immediate past attorney general of the state of Colorado. Wow. So when you you know you talk about legal and, and we want to have legal issues and whether it's strategic and how we work in the market and there's strategic issues, there's also opening doors for working with attorneys general around the country who are likely to be coming into large amounts of money from settlements 
uh, from pharmaceutical company lawsuits that are happening right now to try to hold the makers of opioids accountable for some of the damage that they've caused. And as those happen, we need to be able to reach out to those people, talk to them and share with them what our, what our tools do and how we can help prevent uh, opioid abuse from happening in the first place, and then talk to them about investing in these kinds of solutions for their states. Uh, and we think that's an appropriate use of those kinds of settlements. And uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but if I call the attorney general and pick a state, Ohio, I'm not going to get an answer to, of the phone. If Cynthia calls the Attorney General of Ohio, probably going to get a return call. Huh? Probably going to get a call. We're gonna, we're gonna, and, and so she's making these appointments for us in a very wow. short time that we're meeting with attorneys general all over the country now, sharing what we do. It's an example. Another person we brought on is uh, a doctor uh, in the state of Vermont. So he's working remotely with us. Uh, his name is Dr. John Brooklyn. And he uh, is the creator of a method called Hub and Spoke Medication Assisted Treatment. And it's a way of delivering a delivery system model for how do we deliver addiction treatment to people across large geographies. And in his case, it was the state of Vermont. How can they treat everybody who needs to be treated in Vermont? And they found out, as most of us are, that we're not going to just build giant treatment centers all over the place. It's way too costly to, to put bricks and mortar up, too much driving distance. We can't hire enough doctors to go sit in one place all day. Uh, so it's just not going to work to scale it that way. His thesis was we need to use existing resources in the community, wherever the doctors are, wherever the behavioral therapists are, which is typically in a different place, wherever the emergency rooms are, which is a different place, wherever the methadone clinics might be, which is a different place, but get them collaborating with care compacts and, and agreements and working collaboratively as a system and establish, you know, uh, capitated payment with the state so they'll pay for managing patients and using the systems that are out there already. And we are partnering with John, and I learned about his, his method called the Vermont Hub-and-Spoke Method, and it's known all over the country. And I talked to John after a talk and went, went up to him and said, you know, I think this is great. This is such a, a clear direction for how we should go, given what we're, our situation is. But, but John, how are, you gonna del how are people going to deliver that technologically? How are they going to share records if there's a patient going to this doctor and that therapist and that other emergency room in three different places with three different electronic health record systems? And what are they going to fax stuff back and forth? Or are we going to just call and have to get a verbal report or a release of records? Or how is this going to work? And he said, well, gee, you know, that's a good question. I haven't mm. thought about all the technology aspects or how we would do it. And that's when we started talking a few months ago. And since that time, he's become very excited. And he's now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, has come on as our medical director for addiction treatment. Wow. And so now he's opening doors for us to talk to states about how do we use OpiSafe now to build networks of doctors, not just using our product to help their patients within but to then communicate with other professionals and make a network model and use our technology as the chassis for delivering care across vast geographies and thereby making it possible to use the efficiencies we already have. People talk about we don't have enough treatment, which is true. But we also have a corresponding problem in our country of not being able to access the treatment resources that we do have. It's this unused capacity that is largely just unknown. People don't know where to look. They don't know where to find it or how to get to it. So we build these networks like this and on top of it have created two additional products to help. One of them is called Treatment GPS. It's a meta locator that we tap into over a dozen databases about where treatment resources are. 
and put them all together in an easier to use interface than many of these are not easy to use at all. But if you're a patient or a family member or a doctor, I want to get this person into treatment. I need to be able to look up where are the places to go, how can I, they accept my insurance or not, if I don't have any insurance, or if I have Medicaid, how do I get to treatment? And we plug this tool called Treatment GPS into our OP Safe system and into a patient-sided app called OP Rescue that is deployed at the, the state level so people in the population can just use this and click on a button called Find Treatment. We try to keep it really simple, Find Treatment and thereby connect them into these treatment resources. And that's a big part of this problem is we want to prevent it on the front end, but we also, if somebody's already suffering from a use disorder or addiction, get them into addiction treatment and try to crack that nut as well because that's equally important. Wow. And that recently launched, yeah? Yes, that's, that's recently launched just a few months ago here in Colorado and Colorado... Uh, Nebraska and Delaware have all signed on to use OP Rescue, which is our, our patient-sided app with treatment GPS in it to help guide patients into treatment in their states. Well, these are incredibly exciting updates. And of course, uh, Rob, Vermont's a beautiful state. And if we need to do another episode to update the community on the work between you and John up in Vermont, we do take the podcast on the road. It's a gorgeous state and have no problems going to visit. <laughs> we'll do that. We'll put Vermont on the list and then maybe we'll, maybe we'll target Hawaii next. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that either. <laughs> well, these are all incredible uh, updates on where you are all at and but now let's talk a little bit, where do you see this going, Rob, right? I mean, this is, as you mentioned, yeah, we've seen a, a, a downtick a bit, but the crisis is still in front of us. Where do you see your leadership, Opie Safe's journey, where do you see it taking our country in the future? Yeah, we, you know, we really take this from a broad view. Um, we started as a behavioral health-focused company about eight years ago, my co-founder, Chris Ennis, and I were talking about this, and really it's broad. Opioid use disorder is a very small subset, largely, of behavioral and mental health. We all know that opioids are a focus right now, but we're you know, looking beyond that as not just the issue of the day or the issue of the next five or eight years, but really, substance use disorder is a big question on its own. Benzodiazepines, people have problems with. Stimulants, converting over to meth, people have problems with. It's very parallel kind of thing, starting on Adderall very innocently, being a, converting into someone who becomes dependent on stimulants, and then when they can't get enough Adderall anymore, converting over to meth, wow. which is a parallel pathway to the opioid crisis that we're seeing bubbling up, mm. and meth is really picking up in terms of a problem. So we view this as a more broad issue. Yeah. And even with behavioral health, people aren't managed terribly well. We write prescriptions. It's the most common form of therapy is give people prescriptions, maybe some counseling along with it, but mostly we medication manage people with behavioral health disorders. But we write prescriptions, send them home, don't know how well they're doing. It's part of our underlying thesis and how we built our company was we we'd go home with patients, we follow them, we connect them back with their doctors, we give everybody real-time information to manage better. So we view this as a behavioral health tool in the long term. It's opioids expanding to benzodiazepines and stimulants. And then expanding further as a behavioral health management tool to help people really address the most impactful thing worldwide in terms of disability is mental health. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's behavioral and mental health is, has the most impact on the health of the world. And so we see ourselves helping with behavioral health management, which is largely medication-driven, 
and we have that expertise and that passion, that knowledge, and these tools, they're really applicable to whether you're giving somebody an opioid and you want to monitor them well so they do well and don't have problems, or if you're giving them an anxiety medication for their panic disorder or their PTSD, and we want to manage them well so they don't run into issues. Their issue may not be an overdose death, but it may be a suicide. It may be a mass shooting. It may be something really horrible that's equally bad in a different way. And we see ourselves trying to help solve those larger problems in the next 20, 25 years. Well, there is uh, no lack of passion uh, with the OP Safe team. Again, I'm fortunate to have you guys here on campus and watch your leadership throughout our entire community. Uh, it is um, so inspiring. Thanks for sharing us where Future State is for, for Rob and the OP Safe team. Now let's take it down a bit though. What are two to three action items that the community listening in can implement uh, with your technology, with the movements you've, you've created? What are two to three real world action items? Yep. I always tell people there's three things you can do right now. One of them is look in your medicine cabinet and get rid of the opioids that are sitting there because six out of 10 of you who are listening will have them in your medicine cabinet. I've done this at rotary talks and large talks like where I give out cards and ask people to mail them back to me if they'll just be honest and tell me if they go home if they have an opioid in their medicine cabinet. Can I ask a dumb question mm-hmm. on that? Maybe, maybe it's dumb. When you say get rid of it, what does that mean? I think some people don't even know. Well, how does that, do we flush it down the toilet? Like, how do, we, how do we get rid of them? That's a great question. You can, in Colorado anyway, you can go to a website called takemedsback.org, and it lists all these permanent disposal sites all over the state the state created, and I helped the teams that work to pass the laws oh, wow. to fund the programs to put these drop boxes, they're called, in pharmacies and law enforcement departments like police departments all over the state. And most states, if you're not in Colorado, have a program similar where you can look up just safe disposal site. Even yeah, Google, Google is listening Google, now. Yep, Google exactly. safe disposal sites. Yep. So yep. just Google safe disposal sites, and you'll find one usually not too far from your house now. Years ago it was harder, but now you can find a place and a lot of them are open 24-7, and just take them and get rid of them. People say, I may need them. What if I have pain later? But the, the risks of leaving them there and having your friend, your neighbor, your child, yourself become addicted later on and overdose and die is too great. We say, you know, it's, it's not worth that risk to have those there. So well, get rid of them. That's number one. That's great. We can get going on that today. So right, action item one. Today. The first thing, that's the first thing you do. Second thing you do is next time you have pain and you're talking to your doctor, ask them, what else could I take or do besides having an opioid? Maybe that's the right thing at the end of the day. But have the conversation about what are my options. And don't think, oh, if I'm in pain, I have to have an opioid. Because many times it's true that Tylenol and ibuprofen that's what I use, rotated every three hours, gives you more pain relief, 55% for musculoskeletal pain if I'm doing something like I do, strain my back out in the yard doing too much raking or snow shoveling, and I'll take those, and opioids give you 35% pain reduction. So there are better alternatives that you might not think about. So have the conversation with your doctor about avoiding them in the first place. And the third thing is more downstream. What if you want to have a tool to prevent your loved one from having a problem? Or if you just want to know, gee, I I ran into a cousin, a friend, a neighbor that may need to get into treatment and I want to be able to help them. Download our app called OP Rescue. OPI Rescue. Available at at either of the major uh, download sites for either platform. And download that app and you'll see, here's some useful information. 
a tool you can carry around, and most importantly, the find treatment button inside the app that you can use for yourself, your family, or your loved one to help them get into treatment. Excellent. Those are great three action items. We'll leave some uh, links on the episode notes as well to some of the things that you just shared. So, so thanks for that, Rob. Now, of course, one thing uh, that we really get excited about with this podcast is, is getting the listening community involved. Um, so can you share with the community one problem, need, or question that you and, and you as an organization currently have that they can potentially help out with? Yeah, for us, it's really our biggest struggle is nobody knows about us. Okay. Everybody we talk to when we do, if I can sit down with a doctor for five minutes, if I can talk to a, somebody at the state level, at, at a health system or a state agency for 10 or 15 minutes, it doesn't take much to tell them, here's what we do, here's what our tools are, and for what is a very low per capita cost to scalable technology that's, that's very inexpensive compared to scaling up human resources, here's a way you can address this problem very effectively in your population my sales, my closing rate is remarkably high, and I'm not a good sales guy. I have no training. All I am is a passionate person who has come into technology and coming from that side is I didn't come from the business world or sales. I'm a subject matter guy that came in from that side, and I have you know what I hope is you know passion and leadership and vision. But I'm not a sales guy, and I can sell this thing in a minute because people see I need that tool that would help me it's just getting that audience it's getting that audience so if the people know health systems you know big health system players or companies that are interested in needing these kinds of tools and everybody's concerned about the opioid crisis regulatory and policy folks yep. as well right exactly well you teed me up yet again <laughs> for, for the next uh, ask on the podcast so to get that word out what are some of the ways the community can get a hold of you websites social media handles etc Sure. Our website is opisafe.com. Very simple. And we have a little web form there to go ahead and, uh, you know, submit a request. We get them, you know, very frequently from people asking, gee, and we do because we don't have a gigantic sales force yet. Uh, Hopefully in the next year we'll be growing to that point. But uh, people do call us and and email us from all over the country. So opisafe.com or our Twitter handle. How do you spell that? Oh, yeah. O-P-I-S-A-F-E.com. Excellent. And our Twitter handle is Health. so just add the word health, and it's at Health is our Twitter handle, and we uh, you know, tweet out announcements, and, and as everybody else does, about you know, what we're doing in our, in our company and the, the trends and important events that are happening in our time. Excellent. And to the community, again, in the episode notes, you'll be able to find a, a, a web link for uh, guest feedback. So, so please access that link and fill in the information for, for Rob and the OPSafe team to you know, have those conversations in our communities across the country that are more important than ever. So thanks to the community in advance for giving some feedback to Rob and his team. Well, it's time to close it out, Rob. So we're going to end with a fill in the blank. I'm a passionate pioneer because... I'm a passionate pioneer because I really believe we can make a huge difference if we work together and apply technology to solve problems. These are solvable. I look at them. I'm no genius. I really am not. I just look at these problems and say, we have to do something. We need to bring people together and solve these problems, and I believe they're solvable. Let's, let's go after it. Well, thank you for spending time today on the podcast, Rob. Uh, again, I've been fortunate for, uh, to be able to watch this OP-SAFE movement grow year after year after year and the leadership that you bring to the organization. 
your work is needed in our communities now more than ever. And know you have a huge fan sitting across from you in this podcast studio today. Keep up the great work. Don't take no for an answer, as I know you won't. And let's continue to rally the community around this movement. Thank you for being here today, and thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.